0: Would you bet a few thousand dollars that you could sink an eight-foot putt? What about 10 grand that you could win a drag race against a Camaro with a 1,000 horsepower? If you bet $2 million, could you bet it all on one football game? Maybe you wish you could, but you probably wouldn't. Gamblers is about the people who did. From Spotify and the Ringer Podcast Network comes Gamblers Season 2. Listen now.
1: Welcome
0: into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. We're going to chat about the Bruins in just a little bit with Scott McLaughlin from WEI and the Skate Pod. We'll get into this Beast team as they continue to roll, and we'll get into the scene on New Year's Day, which I thought was quite frankly awesome. We'll chat with Scott about the Winter Classic because that was a lot of fun, and this Bruins team has been really good. We'll see if there's anything they can add at the trading deadline to improve even more. We'll get into the Patriots more on Thursday when we have more information on Damar Hamlin because... I rarely look forward to Monday Night Football because the matchups ordinarily aren't good. But I'm sure I was like a lot of you yesterday looking forward to that game. And then we just got such a painful moment and such a difficult thing to watch, right? That's as scary as it gets. And you and I felt that watching the game for someone that we don't know, and I can't imagine what his family is going through right now. And our thoughts go to DeMar Hamlin and his family. So I just wanted to mention that off the top that we're thinking of Demar Hamlin, his family, and of course, the Buffalo Bills because that was a very difficult scene. and you just hope for the best for him and his loved ones right now. All right. We're recording at ten forty at night after the Celtics just got their ass kicked by the Oklahoma City Thunder. And this is the first time really, I've been concerned about this team because what we saw tonight was an embarrassment. That was by far the worst game of the season, and it wasn't remotely close. You weren't just missing shots or something like that tonight. The effort was a problem for this team. And, I felt like, okay, you figured it out after the Bucs game, right? Christmas, the Bucs are the team that you're looking forward to in terms of the playoff matchup, although maybe now you got more concerns. The Nets are rolling right now. Philadelphia is playing pretty well, and the Celtics are not playing good basketball at this particular point in time, but this to me was a character game against Oklahoma City. You gave up 40 points in the second quarter, and then you gave up 48 in the third quarter after you were getting your ass kicked. So I don't understand that. You can have a bad quarter defensively when you give up those 40 points in the second quarter. But what I cannot comprehend is how do you give up 48 coming out of halftime after you just got embarrassed in the second quarter? What was Joe Mazzula saying to these guys at intermission or at halftime, I should say? What was he trying to say? I mean, how does your team come out even worse than they did in the second quarter for the third quarter where all your starters start the third quarter? And I get it. You didn't have Robert Williams tonight. Who cares? I mean, they didn't have Shea Gilgis-Alexander on the other side, which we'll get into in just a second here, but you gave up 88 points in back-to-back quarters, and I'm starting to worry about this team, right, because of the fact that, all right, and there's some tactical things and some strategical things that I'll get into that concern me, but more importantly here is this team had such an edge at the beginning of the season. They had, as I alluded to, that fuck-you mentality where they wanted to beat everybody. They wanted to prove like, hey, what happened to us last year in the finals We're embarrassed by it. We're using that as motivation, and it seems like for whatever reason, recently, that's just gone out the window with this team. They're not playing with that same energy. They're not playing with that same motivation. They're not playing with that same killer instinct. It felt like to me at the beginning of the season, they just wanted to beat the shit out of everybody, and where has that team gone? We haven't seen that team in a while now, with certain exceptions like the game we saw against Milwaukee. You gave up the most points as a franchise that you'd given up since 1970. Who is Isaiah Joe? I never heard of this guy before. You had eight guys on this team, or I should say six guys on this team for the Thunder go for 20 plus points. Isaiah Joe averages 6.4 points per game. This guy goes for 21. Isaiah Joe is lighting up. Trey Mann, 8.7 points per game. He goes for 21. And I like Josh Kitty This guy's a good player, good passer, good creator. This guy is really talented. But how does he have 25 on 10 of 15 shooting? I'm not mad about the 25. I'm mad about it being on 10 of 15 shooting. Like, from my perspective right now with this team, there is just not pride in the defensive side of the floor. And maybe that was masked by some of what went on early this season when we saw so much good shooting and so much great offense from this team that those issues sort of got lost in the shuffle. And I'll get into them in just a second here. But the defense was not there. And the defense had actually been better. Since the start of December tonight, a massive step back. I mean, we're talking about 1970. It's the last time you've given up 150 points. And it wasn't to like the Golden State Warriors with Steph Curry and when Kevin Durant was there. Right? No, it wasn't to that team. Or when the Nets had Durant, Harden, and Kyrie for a couple of games, and they were so good a couple of years ago. This wasn't against the 07 Phoenix Suns. You give up 150 points to Isaiah Joe and Trey Mann. I mean, how the fuck does that shit happen? It's just that was one of the most unacceptable performances I can imagine this team having. This Celtics team. Did you ever expect them to have a performance like this? The way they started the season. It's just mind blowing. And the best part about this whole thing, or the worst part, I should say, from a Celtics perspective. No, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, the best player on the other team, they are all-star level player who lit the Celtics up, and the Celtics won that game last time, but he lit them up for 37. That guy's not playing this season. Shea Gilgis-Alexander on the court, the Thunder are a good team. They have about a 114.1 offensive rating, which would rank around 11th in the NBA. So nothing to be like, oh my God, that's unbelievable. But when he's off the court, they have a 106.8 offensive rating. Charlotte's last in the league at 107.9. So this team that just scored 150 points, a buck fifty against the Celtics, when they don't have their best player, they are worse than the Charlotte Hornets offensively. Charlotte is dead last in the NBA. And this team, out of all teams, scored a buck fifty on the Celtics tonight. 74 points in the first half. Most of the Celtics, of course, have given up in any half this season. 29 of 51 from the field in the first half, 56.9%. They finished the game shooting 59.2% from the field. So just to put that into the proper context here, the Nets lead the NBA shooting 51.7% from the field. The Thunder, okay, with Isaiah Joe and company, were 59.2%, so 7.5 percentage points higher, if you will, than the Brooklyn Nets, the best team in the NBA. The Celtics average 118.6 points per game, most in the NBA. This team had 150 tonight. Unbelievable to me. And the thing that sticks out to you is they were just getting to the paint. Now, we knew coming into the game, or maybe you didn't, but the Thunder coming into this game, they averaged the most drives in the NBA. They're first in the NBA at 66, way more than anybody else. The Knicks are second at 55.4. Okay, they averaged the most points off their drives in the NBA at 35.1. The Knicks are second at 31.9. So this is what they want to do. They want to get downhill. They want to get into the paint. I have this information. This means that Joe Mazzulla on the sideline, whatever the hell he was doing tonight, he has this information. The players on the Celtics have this information. You know what they want to do is just drive the basketball. And the Celtics just let it happen tonight. I mean, how many direct blowbys did we see in this game tonight? I mean, you look at it on the season. The Celtics, or excuse me, the Thunder, because they like to drive the basketball, they average the most attempts per game in the restricted area at 32.6, which, of course... That's first in the NBA. As I mentioned, you know how many they got tonight? 45. They took 45 shots in the restricted area. That little circle next to the basket, 45 of them. How can you let that happen when you know that's their plan? They don't really want to take threes. Now, they shot threes well tonight. How could they not based on the numbers they put up? But they were just getting to the basket whenever they wanted. The ethos of this team last year was they were the best defensive team in the NBA. What has happened to them on that side of the floor? You look at it on the season coming into tonight, the Thunder, because of this drive game. It's not like they're playing through the post. Shea gets to the bucket all the time, and he didn't even play tonight. But this is what they do. They want to get to the basket because they're not a great shooting team. 54.4 points per game in the paint. You know how many they had tonight? 70, okay? That 54.4 ranks third in the NBA. Memphis leads the league at 58.7. They scored 70 points in the paint tonight. Okay. And the Celtics have been good when it comes to that. They give up just 47.7, which is the seventh best in the NBA. The Jazz is last at 56.2. The Celtics gave up 70 tonight. Okay. So it's just the stuff that to me, that's a pride thing. That is, hey, on the defensive side, you can't just let guys get right to the basket. That cannot happen. Right. It's one thing if you get lit up by a team that just has a great shooting night. Like I would say the other night, the Nuggets game, that was just To the Nuggets credit, they shot the shit out of the ball. That was more about the Nuggets getting, they didn't even get great shots, to be honest with you. They just hit a ton of shots. And with this tonight, that wasn't the case. This was, hey, the Celtics are almost laying down on the defensive side of the floor. So I don't know if that's a, hey, we just think we can show up and beat you because it's the Oklahoma City Thunder. Shea Gildas Alexander is a late scratch. But whatever it is, they get to clean that up. And I do wonder, and I've mentioned this before about the leadership factor with this team, right? Jason Tatum, not a rah-rah guy. Jalen Brown, yeah, he plays with that level of energy, but he's not really a rah-rah guy. We saw Marcus Smart get ejected from the game. So not having Ime that leadership role from the coaching aspect, that could be an issue, especially considering the fact that if you look at Missoula, his team was rolling at the beginning of the season. He didn't have to say a whole lot. So how do you really turn your personality at this point to try to be a hard-ass? I don't think you really can. So they got to figure this thing out. Another thing I would mention is just you look at the half-court offensive rating, OKC came into this. This is via cleaning the glass with a 94.5 offensive rating in the half court. Horrible. 22nd in the NBA. Okay, tonight they had a 120 offensive rating in the half court. In the half court, I'm not even talking about factoring everything in, their transition game, their fast break game. I'm talking about in the half court. They scored 120 points per 100 possessions. Okay, that's the pace. Dallas is first in the NBA at 105.2. They were at 120 per 100 possessions. I mean, I really can't fathom how bad this defense was tonight. And you look at it at the season now, it's starting to become a trend. So the Celtics, their isolation defense this season, opponents are shooting 47% in ISO, okay? That's 26 in the NBA. That's just when you're singled up on a guy. The Celtics are 26 in the NBA in terms of field goal percentage against in isolation. Last year, you know what they were at? Second in the NBA at 36.9%. If you just look at the points per possession... This year, they're at 1.02 in isolation, which is 26th. Last year, they were at 0.80, which was first in the NBA. And you start to look at it. It's a trend up and down the board. The only guy that's been elite defensively in the half court in terms of isolation has been Derek White. He's had opponents shooting 34% against him, which is in the 85th percentile. Okay, how about the rest of these guys? Marcus Smart, reigning, defending, defensive player of the year. 31 isolation possessions this season. Opponents are shooting 48%. That's in the ninth percentile. This is the reigning defensive player of the year. Last year, he was at 41 isolation possessions defended, 26.5%, 93rd percentile. Okay. How about Jalen Brown? 33 isolation possessions defended, 57% opponents are shooting against him. That's in the 12th percentile. Last year, he wasn't great, 44.4%. That was in the 41st percentile though. Tatum, Last year, 70 ISO possession defended, defended, 36.8 opponents field goal percentage, 71st percentile. This year, 52% against Tatum and ISO, 47th percentile. And Brogdon's been really bad when it comes to ISO. 31 possessions, opponents are shooting 57%, which is fourth in the fourth percentile. So you just look at it across the board. This team has really struggled when it comes to defending isolation. Even Grant Williams' numbers are down 49% this year compared to 39.3% last year. And this is where I would just ask the question, where is the pride on that side of the floor? Like the Celtics offense was historic to begin the season. It's not that good anymore. It's not a great offense at this particular point in time. And they started to pick it up defensively, but it's got to be better than it was tonight. I mean, that's just, if you want to say that's an outlier, fine. But that shouldn't happen to a team that has aspirations to win a championship. You can have off nights. We see off nights all the time in the NBA. That wasn't an off night. That was a no-show. That was, hey, we're not playing tonight. We don't really feel like playing tonight. And I never thought we'd see that from this Celtics team. And you look at it now in their last 16 games, the Celtics have been an average team. The reality is they're 8-8 eight and eight in their last 16 games since the start of December. Since the start of December, 32.4% from three, 28th in the NBA during that stretch. In November, they were first at 41.1%. So that three-point shot for them has not been going down. And here's the thing I would look at. So if you look at October through the end of November, the Celtics were just 26 in the NBA in attempts in the restricted area, 23.9 per game. Okay, they shot 67.7 percent, which was ninth in the NBA. If you look at since the start of December, the Celtics are averaging 23.3 attempts per game in the restricted area, which is just 22nd in the NBA. So. Fewer than they were averaging before. Now, the rank is better because the league average has gone down. But if you look at their percentage in terms of what they're shooting in the restricted area since the start of December, it's at 69.3%. You know where that ranks in the NBA? Six during that stretch. So this is what I don't understand, right? So I understand playing the math game at times. And I understand that the Celtics at the beginning of the season, they were getting really good threes. But my problem is it's not of the drive and kick variety like it was at the beginning of the season. And if those numbers are good, if you're finishing at the rim at a high level, you should be getting to the rim more. Like, that is the most efficient shot. If you can get there and you can dunk, that's what you want to see from the Celtics team. And we're just not seeing that right now. They're not getting to the rim whatsoever, just like they weren't earlier this season. But the problem is, they're not hitting the three at the same level they were earlier this season. And the other thing I would add to that is they're not creating the good threes that they were taking earlier this season. So it does seem like they've gotten caught up too much with, overdoing it from three-point territory. And if you look at Joe Mazzulla, it seems like he's okay with it. And somebody's going to talk to Joe Mazzulla about this and say, hey, Joe, this is now a 16-game sample size. Okay, that's not a small sample size in the NBA. You have got to get your team to get to the basket more. Now, if you look at Tatum, big issue for him is not shooting the ball well, right? So since the start of December, he's now 41 of 128 from deep, which is 32.1%. Okay, From the beginning of October through the end of November, he shot 36.6% from three. Okay, so those numbers are actually good. Here's the big difference with Tatum. So I talk about the team getting to the restricted area more. Tatum actually is getting to the restricted area more since the start of December. The problem is he's not finishing. So... He's averaging 6.7 attempts in the restricted area since the start of December, but he's only shooting 62.8%. That's similar to the guy we saw on the other side tonight in Josh Giddy. Good player, but Josh Giddy, you wouldn't expect this guy's a great finisher at the rim, right? Based on his body type, etc. Tatum, October through the end of November, 5.8 attempts in the restricted area, which is less than he has been recently at 6.7 since the start of December, but he shot 75.4%. Giannis is at 74.5 and Zion's at 69.1. So he was finishing better than Giannis and Zion in the restricted area. Now that 75.4 is all the way down to 62.8%. So Tatum, remember, one of the things that he really cleaned up in the offseason was hey, he's going to finish through contact more. What we've seen recently since the start of December, and maybe it isn't a coincidence that the team has been struggling when this has been happening, when the three point percentage has been going way down for Tatum and he's not finishing at the rim. The team is 8-8 eight and eight in its last 16. That's part of the problem, is your star player is not finishing at the rim like he was earlier this season. All right, the season general now, you look at it, they start 18-4. and four. They drop 5-6 of six starting on December 10th. Remember, you had that bad loss to the Warriors. And then they rip off 4 straight. I mentioned earlier, they beat the Bucs, and you feel like, okay, they beat the Clippers too, and Tatum plays Kawhi, and Paul George, and him and Jalen combined for more points than those guys, and you feel like, all right, This team is back on track, but now two straight losses. The Denver game, I can live with that loss because I thought Denver, as I alluded to, they hit some really good shots, but this one tonight, I just can't put my finger on what happened. You would think, okay, it'd be one thing if they were rolling and they just laid an egg, but not an egg of the variety of 150 points, but to do it in the manner that they did tonight, I'm just, I'm completely baffled by this particular situation. Like, I never saw this scenario playing itself out tonight. I thought if anything, the Celtics would beat the crap out of OKC, considering they didn't have Shea and you were coming off a loss like you wanted to build some momentum going into that huge game against Dallas. So now I do have real concerns against about the Celtics. I want to see how the defense plays on Thursday night against Luka and company. By the way, Luka, you think about how that team's playing right now and the Celtics, I get it. They beat Dallas last time, 125 to 112. Luca, though, he had 42, nine assists, eight rebounds. Tatum was great in that game, had 37, 13 boards, got to the line 15 times. He was really good. But the Mavs have now won seven in a row. During that stretch, you look at the numbers for Luca, 41.7 points per game. He's shooting 55.6% from the field, 40.7% from three. He's taking 15.4 free throws per game, 11 rebounds per game, and 9.9 assists per game. Okay, so now I'm looking at Jason Tatum, who I just mentioned the fact that Since the start of December, he has not been the same player that we saw at the beginning of the season. Still playing at an insanely high level. Like, this is more about other guys on the team than it is about Tatum. But from Tatum's perspective, the big national game he played earlier this season against Steph Curry was not a good one for him. He comes back on Christmas Day, big national TV game, Celtics Bucks. he outplays Giannis, he dunks on Giannis. Okay, positive momentum going forward. Now you're playing Luka again. Luka right now is the talk of the NBA. I know Donovan Mitchell had the 71 points, but Luka's the talk of the NBA. This guy is on an incredible run right now. He just had the first ever, what, 60, 20, and 10 game we've seen in NBA history. Most of the NBA world thinks that Luka is the superior player to Tatum. That's what most people think, that Luka's the better player. This is another opportunity for Tatum to make a statement. Outplay the guy that's playing the best in the entire NBA right now. And if you look at the FanDuel odds, Luca right now, plus 280 to win the MVP, the best odds. Tatum's second at plus 350. So if we're talking about Tatum's MVP campaign, now that's not the most important thing to me coming up on Thursday. The most important thing to me is this team actually shows some effort and shows some want to on the defensive side of the floor. But you need your best player to lead the way. Jalen tried to get you going in the th- in the first quarter. He tried to get you going in the third quarter. Tatum did not play well tonight. And I know the final line may look okay. Tatum did not play well tonight. Tatum needs to make a statement coming up on Thursday. This is when your star player shows up, when your team is in a little bit of a funk, when your team needs a spark. This is when your best player needs to be your best player. And we need to see that guy, Jason Tatum, show up in this game coming up on Thursday night. All right. A lot more to get into. Coming up next, we'll chat with Scott McLaughlin from WEI, the Skate Pub. We'll get into the Bruins, who they have been playing really well. And they did step on the gas when they needed to in the Winter Classic. So we'll get to that next with Scott.
1: This episode is brought to you by Cars.com.
0: Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now covers the Bees for WEI, also host of the Skate Pod. It is Scott McLaughlin. Scott, thanks so much for taking the time, man. We really appreciate it.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me on.
0: So, hey, let's start with just the scene Monday at Fenway Park. It was wild. You had the Bees wearing the Red Sox uniforms, which I thought was pretty cool. You had Bobby Orr doing whatever they called that thing, the first shot pitch or first pitch (laughs) shot, whatever that was. I thought that was a little bit over the top to... Veritech, it was a little corny, but it was awesome seeing like Bobby Orr there. He had some of the old Red Sox there. Zidane Charo was there. What did you make of the whole scene?
2: Yeah, I thought it was awesome. Uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things where every year in the winter Classic comes around. You get the debates of like, oh, has it lost its luster? You know, does it still mean as much? And uh, I think we all kind of feel that in the weeks leading up to it. And then you get there and it's it's hard not to just get swept up in it like it's. It's pretty cool. Fan, fans are pumped. They're out there. I mean, I got there like a little before 11 and everything was already packed. And people were saying like, yeah, it was packed from like 9 a.m. So uh you can tell fans are still excited for it. Players love it. Uh, You know, they might not love the ice sometimes. It's obviously not the best ice in the world, but they love the whole environment. You can tell it means a lot to them. Um, You know, just talking to them leading up to it, talking to, to them after it. So it's still once you're there, it's still a really cool event. And, you know, you touched on some of the pregame stuff. Then you get black keys during the intermission and, you know, Boston Pops are there playing during some of the commercial breaks. Like it, it, it is a great event. And, you know, I think whatever issues there might be, whether it's the ice or obviously there's some poor sight lines, if you're actually in the crowd, yeah. um, if you're not high enough up. But, you know, you can kind of put that aside and just sort of enjoy the whole atmosphere of the day. And and Monday, you really had perfect weather. It was, uh, like, low 50, so, you know, the last time I was here it was at Gillette Stadium, and it was freezing that day. And the Bruins got blown out by Montreal, so, like, everyone's just miserable. Uh, yesterday was, you know, especially once the Bruins got going on the third period, a much more lively, loud crowd.
0: Yeah, I'm with you, man. And I thought you nailed it with the players because they were interviewing Marshawn on TNT before the game. And you could tell he kept saying this is like such a special thing, such a special event. And they took it that way. I mean, like they bought into it completely with both teams in terms of the pregame festivities, wearing the baseball uniforms. I thought all of it was really cool. But I got to ask, did you hear any of the Henry booing people booing John Henry? Did you hear any of that?
2: So I didn't hear that. But I saw I saw people tweeting about that and then, <laughs> uh, you know, and then saw some of the videos online. But uh yeah, you know, from the press box it's really tough to hear some of some of the stuff that's going on but uh yeah, that, I guess you know, kind of to be expected given uh what the Red Sox have done this off season really for the last, you know, couple of years and also of course the fact that he owns the Penguins, so um he's a little bit of uh the, the enemy at home for that game.
0: Yeah, and it it's so weird. Like he owns the other team. He's there at Fenway Park where of course he owns the Red Sox. And I, I thought he was going to be a no-show, honestly. I didn't think he would show based on like the temperature right now with the whole Bogart situation. But hey, he was there. I mean, they're stealing pay Rafi signs away and all that. But anyway, getting to the game in and of itself, I thought it was interesting after where Jim Montgomery said this team's resilient and they can ratchet it up. And I felt like the first two periods, it got outplayed. But then you look at that third period, I believe it was seven high danger chances to zero. Of course, you get the two goals from Jake DeBrus, one right after the power play, and then the one where... Paul goes to the net. So, what is it about this team where it does seem like, and I believe it was McAvoy said after the game too, where even when they go to the dressing room with the second intermission and they're down, they feel like they're still going to win. What is it about this team where they've been so good late in these games?
2: So, it's a few things. One, I think veteran leadership is, is key. And two, just the sheer depth on this team. Like, they, part of the reason they've been the best team in the league is that they're the deepest team in the league. And that, tends to take its toll on opponents over the course of the game. So, you know, you look at a game like Monday against Pittsburgh, and, you know, Crosby's line in particular has a lot of offensive zone time early in the game, and they're getting chances. They're getting looks. Even, you know, pinning the Bergeron line in in a head-to-head matchup. And then the game goes on, and it's like – it looks like they are starting to get worn down, and the Bruins kind of find an extra gear, and they're still going because they, you know, they don't need to just rely on their top line. It ends up being – Uh, you know, Debrus gets dropped down to the second line and that's the line that kind of takes over in the third period. So uh, they've done that all year where it's, you know, one line or the other steps up and it's so many Bruins teams for so many years, it's been all right. If the top line, and usually it was the perfection line, Martian Bergeron, Pasternak, if they don't score, then the Bruins don't score. And now it's okay. Well, even if the top line's not scoring, it might be the Crecci line. It might be the third line with Charlie Coyle, who's had Taylor Hall on his wing a bunch this season. It might even be the fourth line where Nick Foligno has had this resurgence season after, you know, such a disappointing year last year. So it's, it's coming from all over. They're getting contributions from their defensemen offensively. Um, so, you know, and now there's like this, this belief that they have because they've done it so many times winning games in the third period, whether it's, whether it's coming back, whether it's, you know, breaking a tie, whether it's just putting a game away that they're already leading that now it's like part of their DNA where they, to your point, like they know that in the locker room, they, they get like multiple players cited this yesterday where, you know, they said they got in the locker room after the second period. And it was just kind of like reminding themselves, Hey, we're the best third period team in the NHL. Let's, let's go show that. So, you know, they know that it's like, and they, can accurately feel that way because they've done it. So they're not just saying words like they can lean on that experience that they already have from the first couple of months of the season.
0: Yeah, well, it's a great point, too, in terms of the depth, because it's got to overwhelm you when you have basically a guy that won the Hart Trophy that's been playing on the third line for the majority of the season. And you may mention Jake Dabrussi dropped down yesterday, but for most of the year, of course, he's been playing with Bergeron and Marchand once Marchand got back. And if you look at him on the season. I mean, he's on pace right now. If he plays the same amount of games as last year, to get to like 64 points, and his career high is what 43 points in his career. So, how much do you attribute this to the coaching change or the fact that he's played with Marshan and Bergeron for most of the season? What thing? Do you, what part of that is more relevant from your perspective?
2: Um, I would maybe give the slight edge to who he's playing with, but I would say maybe even more important than either of those is just. The, the work and the growth that Jake DeBrusque as an individual has had over the last year plus, because, yeah. you know, you reflect on it, it last November, he was getting booed at TD garden because his trade request went public and he was struggling. He had been healthy, scratched already early on last season. And, you know, this turnaround really started second half of last year. Like it wasn't just the coaching change. It was kind of already underway. Now the coaching change has Definitely helps. No question about it. It's clear that he and Bruce Cassidy did not see eye to eye. Uh, You know, I think he didn't like how negative Cassidy could get at times. And Jim Montgomery has come in as a much more positive coach, you know, real build you up kind of guy. And that definitely seems to help. But even the second half of last year, I mean, DeBrusque had 18 goals in the final 27 games last year. So, you know, like you extrapolate that out, I mean, he was at over like a 40 goal pace. Now he probably wasn't going to keep that up, but he was starting to produce already. And he was playing well, even before he got promoted to the top line last year, he got promoted because he was already starting to play well and get it going. And then it's really carrying to this year where now you're seeing to your point, the best, best talk of his career by far, like he's going to shatter his career points high. He's on pace for I think 35 goals. So Um, yeah, and it's, it's, it starts with effort and consistency with him because that's always what's come in and out and hasn't. And I think it's what frustrated someone like Bruce Cassidy because he, he would see, okay, this is what Jake DeBrus can do. Why doesn't he do it all the time? And now you're seeing him do it all the time, no matter where he is in the lineup, no matter, you know, what the situation, whether he's been scoring or not, he's bringing it in all facets of the game, his defensive zone play has been very good. Uh, He's been physical. He's getting to the front of the net. Uh, You know, that first goal he scores on Monday is just like a a classic power forward move, taking it to the front from the side of the net, seconds after taking a slap shot off the foot. So um, yeah, he's just, he's in such a better headspace, and it's like kind of a combination of all of that. Uh, The coach helps. Playing with Bergeron and Marchand has been a huge plus for him, but it's also, you know, I think he, I think he kind of took a look at himself and realized like, all right, here are the things that I need to do and do all the time.
0: Yeah. Another component of that is I just hope the, the boot yesterday, that's just going to be because of the shot that he took. Right. So that's not something to be like too concerned about.
2: Yeah. I, I don't think so. I mean, he was certainly still in in good spirits after the game, obviously. Um Yeah. He did also block a shot late in regulation though. So that, that would be what maybe maybe be, A little more concerning to me because obviously he played through after taking that first shot off the foot. But I wonder if that second one did a little more damage. Um, Bruins were, were completely off on Tuesday. So no, no update or anything yet. But, you know, I guess we'll probably find out sometime Wednesday.
0: All right. And it seems like to me, just like getting Krejci back to be the second line center, it seems like it really stabilized a lot of things, right? Because then Coyle, who I felt like he was kind of overtaxed playing on the second line as a center last year when he got that opportunity, he gets to go down to the third line. (laughs) As we mentioned, he gets Taylor Hall with him, but it does feel like just getting Krejci back. And of course, with the hiring of Jim Montgomery was massive as well. And the system he implemented when we see the defenseman so more involved on the offensive side of things. But it does feel like that Krejci thing really stabilized things for this team.
2: Yeah, it did, because, you know, you end up the second half of last year where it's Eric Holla ends up in that spot, and, and he did a perfectly fine job, but he was also playing between Taylor Hall and David Postonok. So you would hope any NHL center worth of salt would be able to produce at a decent level playing between those two. Um, but you kind of saw in the playoffs last year that Holla got pretty exposed, especially in his own zone. Um, you know, his his all-around game just isn't at the level that you need from a number two center. And he, by the end he was getting like 12, 13 minutes at times, which is just like, that's not a number two center. Um, so yeah, getting Krejci back, it was huge just because he can play in all situations, you know, at times like his five and five scoring at times this year, hasn't even been great. And like that, that line is at times alternated some really good five and five games with some subpar ones. But just the fact that, you know, you have the confidence that he's gonna bounce back. He's so smart. Uh, he's been such a good two-way player for so long that you're not really worried about it. You know it's not gonna snowball with him. And you know, he's whether he's been on the top power play unit you know, or the second unit, he's always a weapon there too, just with his vision. So, and and he can still handle, you know, pretty high minutes, even at, at his age, even coming back after a year abroad. It's um yeah, it, you can tell that you know the team has a lot of respect for him and loves having him back and especially David Pastrnak because they're such close friends as as fellow checks and um you know Pastrnak obviously is very happy playing with Bergeron and Marchand too you know no one's going to complain about that but i think uh, i think he really likes playing with David Krejci
0: yeah no doubt and it it is a great point about the minutes too because i mean him and Bergeron it's amazing like how these guys have continued to stay in great shape. So uh, speaking of the even strength goals, Marshan, he's got the 31 points in what, 29 games, but it's what, only four even strength goals. And he's actually talked about that a little bit. Any concern there? Do you think that sort of picks up here in the second half?
2: I think it'll pick up. So, you know, I'd say I'm not still not concerned about it. And I think the fact that, you know, he he knows it and he knows that this is going to be a process and Brad Martian is not the most patient person in the world, so I'm sure it's not <laughs> it's not easy for him to like to to know that he's not where he wants to be and uh, you know to have to keep kind of going through this process of building up to you know, where he's been at his best. But I still think he's gonna get there. we've We've definitely still seen flashes of it and, um, you know, even like you look at what he's doing in the power play It's like, all right, if you just speed that up a little, and, you know, get back to kind of five on five pace, it, it's going to work. You know, the, the vision's still there. His shot's still there. Uh, it's not like, even at times, like you you still see classic Martian skating with the edge work and spinning off guys. You saw some of that uh, during the winter classic where uh, he kind of faked out a penguin at the blue line and gave himself like a mini odd man rush. Um, so I think he'll get there. It's just a matter of, you know, really fully recovering, getting back to 100% and being able to do it on a consistent night in night out basis rather than just the flashes of it.
0: Yeah. And so Don Sweeney, like most people in the offseason thought, hey, if somebody was going to get their walking papers, it should be Don Sweeney. It shouldn't be Bruce Cassidy. And now we've seen that Jim Montgomery clearly was the right guy. His system has clearly worked with these guys, especially Lindholm, who's had in outstanding season thus far, but you start to look back and Don Sweeney was criticized for a while, especially going back to the Barzell draft and all that. But you look at some of this now, omar has been great. I mean, leads the league in save percentage goals against, and I know he gets a lot of help from, it's not like he's facing like a ton of shots on a nightly basis, but I mean, he was really good in the first two periods yesterday. I'm not trying to take anything away from him, but the Hall trade, the Lindholm trade, Forbert's been really good for them since he got back in the lineup. Zaka's been good for them. So, I mean, he got a lot of shit for a long time, but... He's been pretty good the past couple of years, wouldn't you say?
2: Yeah, and then he almost threw it all out with the whole Mitchell Miller yeah. debacle. Yeah, um, that's a good
0: point. And they lost they, that one of the rare losses they had in Toronto was like that night where Bergeron had to address the media.
2: Yeah. Um, but yeah, aside from that, you, uh, you're absolutely spot on. The The Lindholm trade was huge because that was a position that they'd been they've basically been looking for since Zdeno Chara left or really since. Daniel Charlie started to age and was clearly out of his prime. Um, they desperately wanted to find that next all around left shot defenseman because they knew you know, Matt is a good player, but he shouldn't really be playing 22, 23 minutes a night. Uh, you know, they signed Derek forward as sort of like a cheaper option that they thought maybe could do that, but it quickly became clear like, no, he's a third pairing guy. and when he's playing well, he's a really good third pairing guy but he's not a top pairing guy. So like they had some young guy, you know, Jacob Zabor still around, but has never developed into that. He was one of those first round picks from 2015 arrow back nine and never really developed into that. So they took swings at it, but just kept missing. And then you go get Lindholm where it's, you know, I'm not going to say it's like 100% a short sure thing because some of his advanced numbers had kind of dipped a bit in Anaheim, pretty close to a short thing where you're like okay this is a guy who's been around who's done it who has been a number one or two defenseman his whole career has been to two western conference finals like has the track record has the size the skating everything you're looking for as kind of that left side compliment to mcavoy and has obviously been a home run for them since he got here um you know was playing well last year but battled injuries and you know missed a few games in that playoff series but then this year just hit, has hit the ground running right from the start and you know at times honestly has like looked like a better defense than McAvoy and you know I think McAvoy still is like Martian not back to uh, his full full level just yet coming back from his own offseason surgery so he'll get there but yeah Lindholm's been huge and Uh, You know, you mentioned the Zaka trade again. Like, it's – Hala could be okay in, you know, a certain role. Pavel Zaka has already succeeded in basically, like, every possible role he could put him in in the forward lineup. He's played left wing, center, right wing. He's played on each of the top three lines. And no matter who he's been with, he's helped that line. Like, pretty much everyone he has played with this season has been better playing with Pavel Zaka than without him. He's just a really good complimentary player where, you know, he's very rarely going to stand out to you as like one of the stars of the game, but he makes, he makes smart plays. He's a makes good plays and he just helps the guys that he's on the ice with.
0: Okay. So that brings me to Don Sweeney, this upcoming trade deadline. What do you think he goes after? Does he add another defenseman just for depth? What do you think? I mean, this team's loaded as we mentioned, what do you think they really need? Is there a pressing need?
2: Yeah, I think what you just touched on is what I would point to is depth on defense. Um, they also have virtually no cap space. So if they're going to make any sort of bigger trade, they have to free that up first and foremost, or you have to give up even more prospects and picks to get teams to retain salary and, and all of that. It becomes really complicated and very expensive for them to try to really make like a big addition. And, Really, they don't need a big addition, barring like some sort of catastrophic injury. Right. It's not like they need a, a top line guy. They don't need a top six winger. They don't need a top pairing defenseman. They got that last year. Um, so I think you're looking at depth because right now their seventh defenseman is Jacob Zaboral, who I just touched on, and he hasn't played since I think before Thanksgiving. Like, you know, knock on wood, they've been healthy on defense, so they haven't needed them. But they're also like they're clearly not trying to make sure they get him minutes or keep him fresh or anything there. He's there if they absolutely need him, but I don't think they're really comfortable playing him all that much. He struggled earlier this season, so I think if they can find like another veteran who can come in and be that seventh defenseman who plays sometimes, has to sit sometimes, um, but gives them a little bit more certainty on the blue line in terms of depth, that's probably where they'll they'll be looking. Um, Because they do, pretty much every team does. You get injuries on defense in the playoffs. It's almost inevitable. So if they can shore that up a little bit, I think that might be their priority.
0: Okay, and we know David Pasternak has the super agent. You look at some of these contracts that have been given out recently. McKinnon is at, what, 100.8, 12.6 AAV. McDavid, 12.5. AAV, $100 We know this is going to be in double digits for Pasternak, right? So what do you think it's going to take in terms of the years and the money to get something done with him? Like, should we be worried about this at all? Or do you think he'll ultimately sign an extension with the team?
2: I think he will ultimately sign an extension, but it definitely is somewhat concerning that it hasn't happened yet. Um, Just because it's like, we keep hearing that they're talking frequently almost every day. And yet obviously there's still some gap there because they haven't gotten done done yet. Like we, we know the Bruins want to keep them. We know Poshnag wants to stay. Everyone has said that on record and yet they're still apart. So something's got to give, Um, you know, I think my guess is the Bruins price started somewhere around what they gave McAvoy, which was eight by nine and a half. And to your point about JP Barry being a super agent, He's coming at it as like, well, look what other top forwards are getting, including some of my clients, which is more in the 11 and a half to 12 and a half range. So I think they probably eventually end up somewhere in between. Um, Parsonaga said he's not looking to be like the highest paid forward or anything. Money isn't the most important thing to him. Um, So eight by 11 million a year, Makes a ton of sense. There's just a ton of a lot of symmetry there. You get to 80 million his Jersey number. Like, uh, yeah, it, that just it, it feels like the right number. Um, and, you know, our uh, your old colleague, my still colleague, Rich Keefe, had, you know, a tweet over the weekend that they're finalizing a deal in that range. Um, I don't know if uh, I don't know if it's that close to being done, but eight by 11 makes makes a lot of sense to me.
0: Yeah, well, let's hope he's right on that because that would be nice. So, hey, Scott, just before we let you go, the team in the East you would least like to see in the postseason.
2: You know, so people kind of laugh at this when when I say it, but right now I think it's the Toronto Maple Leafs. Mm. Uh, I think aside from the Bruins, they're probably the best team in the East right now. And the big difference, they're actually not scoring quite as much as they usually have in the past. But the big difference is they're getting defense and goaltending. They have been a very good defensive team. And we all, like, everyone kind of laughed at them for their goaltending plan this offseason where they they dump both guys that they had last year and they bring in Ilya Samsonov and Matt Murray. And, you know, it's been a long time since Murray has been a really good goalies. Uh, you know, he won two Cups with the Penguins, but has battled a ton of injuries in recent years. Samsonov was always, like, a highly thought after prospect, but never quite clicked with, with Washington. And they've been really good for Toronto this year. And, you know, they're winning a lot of games. They're not that far off from the Bruins, all things considered. And Austin Matthews really hasn't even started scoring the way Austin Matthews usually does. Like he is way off his 60 goal pace from last year. And it's like, God forbid he starts scoring at that kind of elite rate again, all of a sudden that team's really going to look dangerous. So, I know no one t- is ever possibly going to trust them until they actually win a playoff series. But um, looking at it right now, I I wouldn't want to be the one that has to uh, test test whether or not uh, they're going to break through this year.
0: Yeah, and I'll say this for sure about Toronto and the Bruins. The NHL would love that type of matchup to have those two teams going up against each other. That is Scott McLaughlin from the skate Pod. Read his stuff at WEI.com as well. Scott, thank you so much for the time, man. We really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff there from Scott McLaughlin. Breaking down this beast team, which continues to be a wagon. The Winter Classic was a lot of fun. That was a good atmosphere there. But I do want to get to some Red Sox here because we got some news on Tuesday. Jeff Pass their first to report from ESPN. He tweeted this out today. OK, third baseman Raphael Devers and the Boston Red Sox are in an agreement. OK, so when I first see this, when I first read this tweet, I'm like, Holy shit. It's actually happening. The Red Sox have signed Rafael Devers. You've got to be kidding me because I didn't see this happening. And then it says, but on a one year, 17 and a half million dollar deal to avoid arbitration. Okay. So my first reaction was, holy crap, I can't believe this is actually happening. The Red Sox are going to sign Rafael Devers. And then I continue to read the tweet. I'm like, okay, yeah, you could kind of see this one coming. And he did add that the fact that the sides got a deal done shows discussions. Yeah, I mean, obviously it shows some level of discussions, but it's not ultimately the news we wanted. Now, it's one year, $17.5 million, as we mentioned. It'll make Raphael Devers the seventh highest paid third baseman going into the season. Now, obviously, this is to avoid arbitration. He's going to want something closer to $30 million per season when he signs that extension. And here are the guys you have in the $30 million range: Arenado. Rendon, who is just completely overpaid because the guy's always injured, Machado, and Bregman. All those guys are over $30 million. Now, obviously, until we get to the extension, we're in a situation, we're in wait-and-see mode with Rafael Devers, and we're going to continue to be nervous about this situation because recent history would tell us they don't get their star-level player signed, right? But it does show, at least to Passon's point, the two sides are having an open dialogue, right? If you're going to get something done with Devers, the last thing you would have wanted to do is play hardball in arbitration, right? Because baseball arbitration is the weirdest thing in the world. It's like the player says, this is what I'm worth. The team says, this is what I'm worth. And they can't split the baby. That's why it's much better to be in a situation here where you get this deal done prior to having a Raphael Devers side have to put something out there and you have to put something out there. And if the gap's really far in that situation, then it's even worse in terms of the negotiating processes, if you will. So that is at least somewhat of a good sign. Now, Alex Spear had this write-up today in the Globe after the deal was done. And this is what I found interesting about Spears' article. He says, while well, Devers was virtually inseparable from Xander Bogarts over the past five-plus years, the 26-year-old's interest in a long-term deal with the Sox is not believed to have changed based on Bogarts' departure from San Diego on an 11-year, $280 million contract. Okay, so I always felt this is going to be the case, even though these guys are incredibly good friends and all that. but. Like Bogarts, Devers actually wants to be here, right? So yeah, Xander's his good friend. You saw him put on Instagram that he was upset after Xander left, but this is why the team, it was important they got this deal done pre-arbitration, but this is also why it's important to get a deal done with Devers and not lowball him anymore, right? Because of the fact that he genuinely wants to be here, but there is a catch. He's going to want to be here to a certain point, to a certain extent, right? Because... What we found out is Bogarts wanted to be here, but he also wanted to at least be taken care of. And with Rafael Devers right now, up until this particular point in time, he hasn't been taken care of. Now, my hope is that this is progress, that we're going in the right direction by settling in terms of the arbitration situation. But I will tell you that Mookie broke the record when he agreed to his arbitration with the Red Sox as well. So it's not like the past deals the Red Sox have gotten done have pointed to this guy getting signed long term. But the fact is this. The further and further this thing gets along, I think that it's more and more likely that Devers is just going to shut this shit down, right? Because think about it from Devers' perspective. This team could be bad. We know that the starting rotation, they're old. Now, you're hoping with Bayo, you're hoping with Woodlock, etc., but this is not a great rotation. The lineup still needs another bat, right? You've never really replaced the Xander Bogarts production. So if this is a very similar season, and we know what the AL East is. The Yankees are going to be really good adding Rodon. The Blue Jays added Bassett to be their number three starter. That team is really good. We know that what they can do from an offensive perspective. The Rays are always going to be the Rays. And what we found out last year is the Orioles are at least frisky. I mean, the Orioles were better than the Red Sox last year, right? So if this team continues to go in the wrong direction, that's when it's going to be Devers looking at this being like, well, why, if if they're trying to get me to sign something that isn't over $300 million. Why would I sign it? So that's why they have to get this thing done before the season from my perspective. So a, you don't have to worry about it going into the season because that was a black cloud over the organization last year with Bogarts. We felt the whole year that they were not going to sign him. And we ended up all being right about that, but it hung over the team It hung over the clubhouse. The fact that the leader of the team is basically trying to hold back tears before the season, when he's addressing the media at the podium before that game against the Yankees, I mean, that was an embarrassing look for the Red Sox. So it would behoove them to get something done. So this is a small step in the right direction, but I'm not going nuts until we see Devers actually sign on the dotted line. Now, the Sox last year, in terms of their television ratings, they were down 35% from 2021, 35%. So not getting Rafi done is bad for business too, right? At what point do you start to factor in the business perspective? Because we know... Venway Sports Group is all about the bottom line. They're all about the business. At what point do you factor that in? Because you lost Bogarts, you lost Mookie, and you start to really look at this thing. Besides Rafi, who else are you watching for this year? Now, I'm intrigued by Yoshida just because he just came over from Japan, but he's not exactly a guy that you're super excited to watch. He's not going to hit a ton of home runs. He's going to hit for average. He's going to walk. He's not going to strike out, et cetera. Cassis, yes, very intrigued with him because he's... The number two prospect in your organization. More on him in a second here. And Bayo when he pitches. Now Whitlock, I like watching him pitch. But even if you think back to 2021, when this team made their run, you had guys like Rafi, obviously, who was building off what he did in 19. He had the down 2020. Bogarts had an outstanding season. And the Schwarber thing was really interesting. Once Schwarber got into the lineup, so you had marketable guys. Right now, the only guy that is really marketable with this Red Sox team. It's Rafael Devers. I mean, yesterday, Kike Hernandez is the guy that's getting all the attention because he's at the Winter Classic, or I should say on Monday. And you look at it, you're like, okay, who do these guys really have? Like, nobody's going to watch story right now based on what he did last year. So it's going to start to affect the bottom line if you don't keep your stars. Mookie's gone. Bogart's gone. You got to get Rafi done. All right. Another thing I wanted to get to here is. We talked about the Winter Classic, but just from a Red Sox perspective here. So you can see John Henry getting out of his car. And on social media, there was a couple of guys, a post went on social media where there's yelling at him to pay (laughs) Rafi. He was booed. Multiple people reported he was booed when he was walking through the stands. I mean, it's just a complete embarrassment. And how about this? Jason Mastrodonato from the Herald, he had this. A sign that said pay Devers, and you can actually see the sign on social media, was confiscated by Fenway Park security officials at Gate E before the Winter Classic yesterday. But the sign didn't violate the code of conduct and the Red Sox admitted the error. Red Sox spokesman told Mastrodonato, quote, the security officials made a subjective judgment call because this was an NHL event. Had they run it by management, it would have been allowed. And we are stressing that with the team that was on site. I love this. The Red Sox are just blaming the security people. I mean, could you get any lower than that? You think that all of a sudden some security guard just took away the Devers sign? I mean, come on, give me a break. I mean, that was such a crazy thing to think about, too, right? Because you had these Red Sox players, or I should say you had the Bruins players Showing up in the vintage old school Red Sox uniform and the owner of the Red Sox is the owner of the Pittsburgh Penguins, right? And I know you have different sports where you have different owners in different cities. I mean, the one that comes to mind is like the Cronkies, but this was just a weird situation yesterday, especially considering where the organization is at right now, right? Like the approval rating of John Henry from a Red Sox perspective, especially after the Bogarts situation, is very, very low. And you have John Henry there to watch his other hockey team at the place where his baseball team plays. It's just a really, really strange thing. And I do wonder this, right? Because you gave the fans in the stadium you were at yesterday a shit product last year in terms of the Red Sox, and you just let one of your best players leave. I just wonder where their motivation is right now as an ownership group, right? Do they want to win? Because their behavior has sort of indicated the opposite. When they first came here, they were motivated. They were motivated again after they bought Liverpool and they were criticized and they won two World Series after that. But how motivated are they right now? And even if you want to blame Heimblum, and believe me, I've done a lot of that, you have to acknowledge that ownership hired this guy and they knew... They knew what he was selling, right? Like long-term sustainability, building up a great farm system. But the problem was you did have a great farm system at one point. Those guys became Mookie Betts and Xander Bogarts. The Red Sox always had a great farm system for a bunch of years, right? Before the Dabrowski era, if you will. And then you decided they're not supposed to be part of the future anymore. So at what point are we going to see the team winning at a high level again, right? Because you had two horrible seasons under Heimblum, 2020 and of course, 2022, and 2021, you had one good year where you made a run. And it looks like we're trending towards another bad year for the Red Sox. I mean, I don't know how anybody right now could pick the Red Sox to finish any higher than third in the division. And right now, I look at this team and I'd say they're finishing fourth in the division, but nobody could justify picking them to finish first or second, right? So one of two things happened with the Heimblum hiring and with the ownership group. First one is they said, hey, stop negotiating with Mookie and trade him, okay? We aren't going over the $300 million threshold. We'll go to 300. million. We're not going over that. So stop negotiating with him, and then the other component is this past off season is stop negotiating with Xander. We're not giving him more than two hundred million dollars. And remember, the final deal that was reported for Bogarts was about one hundred and sixty. After they tried to lowball him in the offseason with that one extra year, so either ship, so either ownership told him to stop, or B, they trust him to make these decisions. So. Either that's the case where they're just MIA, they're saying, hey, we trust Haim, he can handle the situation, or they're actually telling Haim what to do. Either one of those situations, and I tend to believe it's more the second where they're just letting Haim make the decisions, they're letting the baseball people do their job, even if that's the case, right, which I believe that is the case. I believe Haim's making these decisions. I believe if Haim wanted to pay Bogarts, Bogarts would be here, okay? But my whole point about this is, is, well, you're trusting the wrong guy because Heimblum has proven nothing as an executive that would make you think, hey, this guy is the man for the job. So either one of those situations is scary. Okay, now I did want to get to this real quickly because we're getting some reporting about the Marlins being interested in Tristan Cassis. So this was from Alex Speer: The Marlins view reigning Cy Young winner, Sandy Alcantara, as untouchable, but beyond him, they're open to dealing from a talented group of arms that includes Pablo Lopez, Edward Cabrera, More on him in a second, as well as lefties Trevor Rogers and Jesus Lazardo. However, the Marlins are seeking to upgrade their 2023 big league lineup in any deal involving their starters. Cassis fits the bill, adds Spear, a prospect such as center fielder Rafaela, who emerged up into number three in the prospect rankings last year for the Red Sox, who is expected to open 2023 in AAA, would not. The Sox are open to dealing a big league pitcher, potentially including Tanner Houck. But that profile isn't a great match for Miami's needs, unless Hoke or the other Red Sox trade candidates could be dealt elsewhere for a position player. So a couple of things from this, because this started with the Miami Herald report, and Spear is basically reporting back what he's hearing from the Red Sox. The Marlins are actually trying to win in 2023. So Alcantara just won the Cy Young. He's in the family photo of the best pitchers in Major League Baseball. I mean, just to put the metric man hat on here for a second, he finished with a 2.28 ERA, fourth among starters, and he had he was 5.7 wins above replacement. 228 and two-thirds innings last year, the most in Major League Baseball. So he's entering his 27-year-old season, and he's one of the premier starters in the sport. So yeah, that would be a great fit if the Marlins were shopping Alcantara. The problem is, there's no reason to even discuss Cassis, because why would you trade Cassis unless it's anybody but Alcantara? Alcantara is one of the best pitchers in the game, and I love Cassis, but if we're talking about Alcantara, that's a situation where you got to discuss that. But That's not what the Marlins are looking for. The Marlins are looking for major league hitters right now. The Red Sox don't have really any to offer, right? So the Sox, if you look at it from a Red Sox perspective, there's no way you trade Casas for any of these other pitches. Yeah, he's got pop and the Red Sox need pop. He's a moose, 6'4", 250. love the approach last year, 20% walk rate. Only Juan Soto was north of 20% on the season. No other player was north of 16. That's how good Casas is in terms of his plate discipline. So this is a 22-year-old guy. He's number two in your organization. You look at where he finished last year, 19th in Baseball America's prospect rankings and 25th in MLB.com's prospect rankings. So it makes no sense to move him unless you're getting an absolute stud like Alcantara. You're not trading him for some of these other pitchers the Marlins have, right? So the Marlins, look, they missed on him in the draft, Cassis. And he's from that area. That's why they want to get Cassis back to try to make up for that mistake of missing out on him back in 2018. Not gonna happen from a Red Sox perspective. Don't worry about this at all if you're a Red Sox fan. But the Hulk portion to the equation is interesting to me. Now, clearly, this is not what the Marlins need. They want bats. Hulk doesn't make sense for them. They have enough pitching. They don't need Hulk. But what I've been telling you all offseason is I believe the Red Sox want to trade Tanner Hoke. And you look at it, Tanner Hoke went into the bullpen last year and they keep saying they're working him up to be a starter. He's not a starter. He's a reliever. The Red Sox basically told us that Hulk is not a starter last year. If you look at it, in July, the Red Sox as a team had a 709 ERA. That was last in Major League Baseball. So the Red Sox starting pitchers, they were the worst pitching staff in Major League Baseball in the month of July. They had all these injuries. Nate was hurt. Rich Hill was hurt. Waka was hurt. You had the worst rotation in the sport at that particular point in time. You know how many games Hulk started during that stretch? Zero. All his work was coming out of the bullpen, right? So the Red Sox don't even believe this guy's a starter. So why would any other team in Major League Baseball actually buy into it? I've given you the numbers time and time again. Second time through the order, Tanner Houck is not good. He's a relief pitcher. So the Marlins, they don't need starters. They're trying to get rid of starters. But what other team is going to buy into Houck as a starter? I don't know how the Red Sox can try to sell this to anybody. The Tanner Houck's a starter. We know the Red Sox don't believe that, right? This is where I would be interested in terms of a move that the Red Sox could possibly make here with the Marlins. Rafaela completely flew up the prospect rankings, as we alluded to. Number three in terms of where he's at right now in the Red Sox organization. Only behind Marcelo Mayer and Tristan Cassis. He's third on this list after he was way down the list last year. Had an outstanding season last year, 824 OPS in Portland, And he's a similar athlete, as crazy as it sounds, to Mookie. You can actually see Mookie in his swing, too. Very similar swings. I'm not comparing the players. I'm telling you, I would legitimately trade this guy if somebody became available. But this is a legit chip. But again, unless Miami thinks he's ready this year, they're not going to deal one of the starters for him. And we don't know exactly when Rafael is going to be up. The Marlins want to add a major league bat right now. That's why they're interested in Cassis, even though they're never going to get him. But let me just get to this for a second. So I would be really tempted if the Marlins are looking at Rafaela, and they think that he can be a major league player this year and contribute at a high level, which you're projecting a lot considering he's still a young guy in the organization. But Edward Cabrera from the Marlins, that guy I would jump on. If you have to move Rafaela. I would get him 6'5", almost 220 pounds. So a really good frame. And last year, 71 and two thirds at the big league level, 108 whip, 301 ERA, entering his 25-year-old season. Hard hit rate, balls off the bat, 95 plus, 33.3%. That was 15th of 153 starters that threw at least 70 innings. So guys are not hitting them hard. Change up is filthy. Opponents hit just 172 against that pitch. And that's why his numbers are actually better against lefties than they are righties as a right-handed pitcher. Lefties last season at 168 against him. Not like righties clobbered him. They hit 186. Nobody was hitting this guy. Four seamer sits at 96 miles an hour. That's the 15th hardest of... Those 153 starters that threw at least 70 innings. So he's got a live arm. Opponents hit just 182 against his four-seamer. He's got a curveball. Opponents hit just 167 against. Slider opponents hit just 128 against. So I like Rafael as a product. But if you can get Cabrera, you got to make that move from my perspective. Now, again, this all comes down to the Miami situation. But think about that three-headed monster you could have in terms of your young pitchers. Bayo, who am I on? Whitlock, who I'm not looking at his starter numbers from last year. I believe he's going to grow when he gets uh, more of a runway entering the season, knowing his in the rotation. And then you add Cabrera. I would do that because you already have two really good prospects as it pertains to Tristan Cassis. And of course, you have Marcelo Mayer. Now, I like to keep my young studs in terms of position players, but this is one of the reasons you have, you try to stockpile your farm system with talented players so you can deal for major league players like this. This is why you make the Chris Sale trade because he can help put you over the top. I'm not saying Cabrera is Sale, but if you have a chance to get a stud starting pitcher, that is just coming into his own in terms of his major league clock, if you will. I'm going to go ahead and do that if I'm hein Bloom and Company. Now I don't trust Heim Bloom to make smart moves, but you get my overwhelming point. If Rafaela, if the Marlins come to the realization, like, hey, this kid can play for us this year, I would do that in a second if I was Heim Bloom and Company. All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Surdy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days.